Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be back here. In order to understand why we don't want chemotherapy, it's important to remember where chemotherapy came from. <laughs> chemotherapy came from World Wars I and II, where the Germans were dumping mustard gas on the Allied forces, resulting in all those noxious uh, consequences you see on this slide. But serendipitously, the soldiers developed lymphopenia, atrophic lymph nodes, and a small spleen. So Goodman and Gilman from the famous biochemistry textbook with Wintrobe and Damaschek did the first experiment. They took a derivative of mustard gas, an alkylating agent, and administered to patients with lymphoma, and they responded. It didn't last long, but it was the first demonstration that you could actually treat a systemic cancer and get a response. And alkylating agents, the derivatives of mustard gas, form the foundation in, I guess that's sort of a yellowish orange, of many of our current chemotherapy strategies. But this is what we're giving to patients, derivatives of mustard gas. Let's start with relapse patients, which is where new drugs come along. The only drugs approved for the treatment of relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma shown on this slide, along with the line of therapy to which they are approved. Rituximab, Y90, Ibrutumumab, Tuxetan, of course, everybody knows that one, uses it widely. Bendamustine alone or with obinutuzumab. Then you have the Isub sisters, Idella, Copan, and Duva. And most recently approved was R-squared. The only chemotherapy drug on that whole list is bendamustine. And this is what you get with it. This is the Gadolin trial that we published, uh, Lori Sane and I and others published over the last years over and over again, uh, which was a randomized comparison in rituximab refractory follicular and low-grade lymphoma between bendamustine and bendamustine obinutuzumab with the latter with maintenance. And what we demonstrated was a remarkable improvement in progression-free survival. The median progression-free survival was two years. Remember that. And there was also a survival benefit, two years. And now this is some of the newer targeted agents in development. In the gray are those that target the cell surface. In the white, those that target the innards of the cell. And in yellow, those that target the microenvironment, the milieu from monoclonal antibodies and bispecifics to all the kinase inhibitors to the checkpoint inhibitors and immunomodulatory drugs. There are no new chemotherapy drugs on this list. They're dying out. Let's look at the ISIB sisters. The, the three on the left are the ones that are commercially available, and at least two of them get you response rates of close to 60% with 11 plus months of progression-free survival. The next one coming along of umbralisib on the right uh, has a similar response rate and the PFS is at least in that range. This is better than we used to get with single agent chemotherapy drugs in the relapse refractory setting. Back in 04, 15 years ago, we in the CALGB now alliance develop a regimen called R-squared, rituximab and lenalidomide, since we can't say Revlimid. 
And we compared it with lenalidomide alone. There was a third arm of rituximab alone, which was dropped because no one would put their patient on it back then. And what we showed was that a combination of two targeted drugs got you a response rate of 73% with 40% complete remissions and a median event-free survival of two years. And this resulted in part in the AUGMENT trial that you heard alluded to previously of R squared versus R placebo in relapsed refractory follicular and marginal zone lymphomas, large patient population. The response rate of 80% with the combination, we don't see that with chemotherapy in the relapse setting. And progression-free survival, here the median is 36 months. You remember the two years with bendamustine obinutuzumab, a very long duration of response, and which will get argued by my friend Richard Fisher, a survival benefit. Oh, he's groaning over there, even though it is 0.02. <laughs> and we have lots of other agents in development that are better have higher response rates than we ever could achieve with chemotherapy. There are bispecifics. Uh, here's one that I'm showing you, an anti-CD3 by anti-CD19. And since I don't have my new glasses on, I'll look right here. <laughs> Overall response rates of, if you look at the higher dose, about 84% once you get above uh, a certain threshold. And uh, some of these are quite durable. You heard uh, Ari Melnick talking earlier about EZH2. Tazimetastat is the drug that targets EZH2. And in the uh, mutant patients, there was a 77% response rate. And median PFS in this beaten up population was, again, 11 months. Now, there is a, a molecule on all our cells called CD47. This is the don't eat me protein, which prevents our own macrophages from eating our own cells. And this is expressed in uh, greater density on malignant cells, shown here. Um, and there is, this is a checkpoint with SERP-alpha. And there is an EAT signal that is suppressed until you bring along a drug, and there are several of these which target the uh, SERP-alpha blockade, resulting in eat me. And you get phagocytosis of the tumor cells. And in a recent paper published by Ranjana Advani, uh, with one of these compounds, there are several in clinical trials, in follicular lymphoma patients, small number, but the response rate was 71% with 43% complete remissions. We're seeing a pattern. Everything is about 80%, much higher than we got with chemotherapy in the past. And finally, what talk would be complete without CAR T cells. And on the left are the results in panels A and C, progression-free and A, overall survival with one of the CAR T cell products in follicular lymphoma. The right is transformed. So you can see the results are exceptional. And this is immunotherapy. This is not chemotherapy. Now, on the front line, 
first hint that we could get excellent outcome without chemo was the study by the SAC group showing that at eight years with rituximab only and four weekly doses, four subsequent doses every other month, 40% of patients were without progression at eight years. So again, in the CLGB, we combined in 04 doublets of biological agents. This was rituximab and galixamab and anti-CD80. And you can see that we got responses in the low-risk patients of 90%, 80 in the intermediate, and almost 60% in high-risk patients with a substantial proportion of complete remissions. The PFS correlated with FLIPI, but when you look at survival in these untreated patients, it was as good as you get with chemotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy. And even though the study started in 04, I have patients who remain in remission to this day. So our next doublet was a combination of epirtuzumab and anti-CD22 and rituximab, and our response rate was 86.5%, half of which were complete remissions. And once again, the PFS was quite impressive, and the overall survival was rather striking. And there's no toxicity putting two antibodies together, like there is with chemotherapy. There are no subsequent malignancies, like there is with chemotherapy. Now, R-squared was subsequently brought into the front line by two groups, Peter Martin in the CLGB Now Alliance, and my former fellow Nathan Fowler from MD Anderson. We got not terribly dissimilar results. I'm just showing ours because it's ours. We had a response rate of 94, 95% with this regimen in previously untreated patients, and of which 72% were complete remissions. And this shows the progression-free survival, which was rather impressive. And the two studies led to the relevance trial. This was a very large, this was probably the most positive negative trial ever done. Huh? I'll show you why it's positive and I'll tell you why it's negative. It was negative because the company didn't bother listening to their advisors, which said, make this a non-inferiority trial. They said, oh no, we're going to make it a superiority trial. And what it was was a randomization in over 1,000 patients to R-squared versus R-chemo both with maintenance rituximab. And what'd you get? You got similar overall response rates in excess of 80%. You got similar complete remission rates. And there were two co-primary endpoints. One was CRCRU ongoing at 120 weeks, and they were the same. And progression-free survival was the secondary co-primary, and that was the same. And the survival was the same. And if you look at toxicity, there was more marrow toxicity, fevers, and the like with the R-chemo as one would expect. So here you have non-chemo getting similar response rates, complete response rates, progression-free survival, overall survival with less toxicity. So why in the blazes do you need chemoimmunotherapy? So in conclusion, we have an increasing number of non-chemo strategies 
in development. Our charge is to figure out how to put them together in an intelligent fashion to make them even better. There is a total absence of chemotherapy drugs in development. That should say something to us. Who wants them? We don't want them. Combinations of non-chemo agents provide results comparable to chemo with fewer toxicities. And so the 2004 promise that we generate in CLGB of non-chemo strategies for follicular lymphoma has become a reality, and this is where we are at this point in time. <laughs> Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm between two of my good friends who are staked out on one side of the argument. Don't listen to the flim-flam. <laughs> Pay attention to the data. Let's talk about where we really are. What's the story with follicular lymphoma? From 70s to 90s, survival was not impacted greatly by the chemotherapy agents. Median survival was 7 to 10 years. That's actually not great when you discuss it with your patients. Less than 20% of the patients were alive at 20 years, and watch and wait did not appear to reduce it, but it didn't improve it either. So the dogma was improved survival was not a reasonable endpoint for clinical trials. And this is the early data of the Stanford series, which shows you that median survival 7 to 10 and no plateau. What changed? Rituximab, an amazing transformation. For the first time, when rituximab was added to chemotherapy in the Marcus trial here with CVP, there was a major advantage in time-to-treatment failure and also overall survival. Every study now that adds rituximab to combination chemotherapy has a positive advantage. There are no negative advantages. So rituximab had a market effect that changed the paradigm where survival became an endpoint we could now look at and expect to look at in beneficial clinical trials, a major paradigm shift. Has overall survival really been impacted for the patients, not in the trials? The answer is yes. These are series of the SWOG Lymphoma Committee over time showing improved survival. You can put the same slides up for the German indolent lymphoma group. You can put the same slides up for the MD Anderson. Historically, look at that. Now 90% of the patients are alive at five years. A remarkable transformation. Now at Stanford, instead of seven to 10 years, the median survival has increased to greater than 19 years. So you can argue whether it's exactly the same as the normal population, slightly inferior. I do believe it probably is, but depends on who you put in the mix to look at. So now you can look at watch and wait, and you heard a nice debate about using that up front. You can start with a monoclonal antibody. You can use chemoimmunotherapy with either CHOP or bendamustine, or you can move into targeted agents. The question of this debate is, do we wipe out the top and go to the bottom? 
And I will argue that's not yet prime time. Ben de Mustin came along. Lots of things come from different backgrounds. Bruce and I come from different backgrounds. You can't hold it as against it, okay? Don't let him give you mustard gas and all that stuff. Bendamustine was his favorite chemotherapy drug. It came out of the German East German war machine after 20 years in a freezer. It was randomized against RCHOP versus Arbenda, and you're all aware that there's an availability and improvement in PFS in this particular study, but there was no difference in overall survival between the Arbenda and our chemo. Toxicity was less with the Arbenda arm in terms of leukopenia, neutropenia, CSF, and some of the other things in terms of paresthesias. And so Arbenda became the default for many people in the United States, although there is limited long-term data and follow-up on that. And it is a fluoropyrimidine, which may come back to bite us in later years. We'll see. Okay. New antibodies have come along. And I would argue they haven't made major impact. This is the gallium study. You've heard about it before. It's basically substituting the G antibody for the R antibody. And what you see on this slide was there was a PFS advantage, but there is no overall survival advantage. And the cost implications are dramatic for this. So up front, most people still use RCHOP or Arbenda and not the G versions, but there is some debate about that. Okay, now let's get to my friends who surround me in the city of New York and Washington, the CLGB. And Bruce told you, we're going to come back to use Bruce's own words and editorials against him. Okay, he's written some interesting things. You've heard about the first three studies, and then there comes the relevance trial. And we're going to talk about relevance because I think we can all agree there is only one randomized upfront comparison of drug-free biologic therapy versus our chemo, okay? And that's this study, all right? And I don't know where they get all their slides from, but these came from Frank Morsheimer, who is in fact the lead author on the German study, on this international study and published in the New England Journal. So, you've seen this before. Point out that the R squared goes for basically a year and a half versus the R chemo, and then maintenance was used in both arms for a three-year period of treatment. Here is, and you did see it on one slide from Bruce, the survival curve. And as pointed out, there is no improvement in this curve on overall survival. In fact, we will talk about this. Uh, this is the PFS, the overall survival is also the same. Basically, this was set up as a beneficial trial to show the benefit of R squared. And the statistics were set up to do that, and it failed. It did not show a benefit for R squared. It is not an equivalence trial, so we are still lacking what differences there could be between the two arms. So the authors concluded that relevance was designated as a superiority trial and did not meet the desired endpoint. R squared was not superior to R chemo based on CRU, 
on other clinical efficacies mentioned. And in the safety profile, there are differences we can talk about, but toxicity is unique to each one, okay? And obviously, further follow-up will continue. So what do I conclude? There are multiple options that exist for untreated follicular lymphoma. However, chemotherapy continues to have a major role. Why? Untreated patients now have survivals approaching individuals without cancer. We have very short follow-up on the biologics, and we can't guarantee that to patients. Long-term follow-up is not available on the chemo-free regimens. The chemo-free regimens have unique toxicities that are different than the standard and require careful monitoring and treatment. The duration of treatment with the chemo-free is prolonged compared to the chemo, and cost, cost, cost. Copay, copay, copay. Significant increases for your patients that they're going to have to deal with. Now, they asked me to include in here, and I, Bruce didn't go into it, but we'll have less disagreement here, multiple treatment options for treated follicular lymphoma. And here is an interesting thing. You can't just put these biologics together. There is a world-class expert who has proven that, and he spoke before me. A phase one trial of R squared plus idelisib, a PI3 kinase inhibitor, showed unexpected toxicity, pneumonitis, diarrhea, colitis, transaminitis, severe toxicity with two deaths, hepatic failure, and respiratory. And the Honorable Bruce Chesson in Blood in 2016 wrote, there are speed bumps on the road to a chemotherapy-free world for lymphoma patients. I remind him of his words. So what options do we have? We have watchful waiting. We have monoclonal antibodies, which can be used again. We have chemoimmunotherapy, or we have other biologic agents. Are we moving for, and hopefully, that we can get uh, chemo-free? Yes, I do believe that is an aim of many people. But it has to come with the caveats of, show me the long-term survival, every bit is good. Show me toxicity that is manageable and easy. And show me a cost that our patients can assume. Thank you for your attention.